0: Beloved in the Lord, few of us have been to court for any length of time, yet somehow we all know about court and what takes place in a trial because once in a while there will be an especially terrible case unfolded by the media in all its detail. There have always been TV shows too about what happens inside the world of law and order. People want to watch because there's something compelling about a courtroom. Evidence is presented. Witnesses take the stand to testify. Statements are made by prosecutors, defendants and judges. A trial is where important things are decided, where human lives are held into balance. It's where ugly secrets are brought to light. It's a place where justice is administered and where redemption is sometimes found. Now, this is certainly true for human courts and human trials, but it's also true for the courtroom of God, For we know that the Lord is the almighty judge, and standing before him, we're accused of terrible crimes. Without delay, we ought to be declared guilty. No, the outcome of our trial before God shouldn't really be in doubt. But then something happens. In that courtroom, someone stands up with an announcement to make. There's new evidence, a new argument. There's a defense that cannot be challenged. Sinners are justified in God's sight by faith. That is, by faith we're declared righteous, not guilty you could say. We're cleared of every charge and every penalty. It's something that is possible only through Jesus Christ who was condemned in our place. That's our theme for this afternoon based on the summary of God's word in Lord's Day 23. Through Christ, sinners find mercy in God's courtroom. We can see four points. The charge is serious. The advocate is accomplished. The judge is gracious. And the verdict is unexpected. Firstly, the charge is serious. Before a case is brought to trial, the prosecution is careful about what charges they're going to lay. You can't appear in court with a vague list of offences, but you need to be specific. The prosecutors will look for an open and shut case, even just one or two major charges with plenty of evidence. Some of the lesser offences might even be overlooked. Not so with God. The king calls us to account for our actions, for our inactions, even to account for our hidden attitudes and secret thoughts. That's a sweeping indictment. God lays against us a threefold charge. And once you start unpacking it, it's quite a bit. This is what we read in answer 60. My conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them and am still inclined to all evil. Three things are mentioned. First, we've sinned against all God's commandments. That's like taking the criminal code, a pretty hefty volume, and slamming it down on the table in front of the accused. You've broken each and every precept of the law. Not just one or two, but the totality of God's laws have been broken in thought, Word and action. We've sinned against all God's commandments. Second, with respect to those same laws, we have never kept any of them. That's the other side of the prosecution's argument, and it's one that you're rarely going to hear in court today. We're not just accused of actively breaking the law, but also of failing to keep the law. We've neglected the positive parts of God's word. For example, God commands us to love him with our heart, soul, mind and strength, but we don't. We hold back on God. We reserve some of our love for other idols. The Lord also commands us to love our neighbour as ourselves, but we don't. A lot of the times we pretend Our neighbour isn't even there. So, this trial isn't just about the murdering and robbing and cheating we've all been involved in. It's also about the helping and sharing the true worship that we haven't been involved in. It's about the good things that we have not done sins of commission, but also sins of omission. Finally, the third point for the prosecution, we're still inclined to all evil. Now, today, that's a central question about a convicted criminal who's pleading for a shorter sentence or who's applying for parole. Have there been any improvements in his behavior? Is there a likelihood of him reoffending? Well, if someone's still inclined to all evil, still bent on breaking the law, then he'd better stay locked up. And that's us. Apart from God's help, this remains our natural inclination to break God's commandments. And so this ends up being a long list of charges and well-founded ones at that. The prosecution doesn't have to work hard to close the case. The Apostle John is honest about our chances before the heavenly judge if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. 1 John 1 verse 10. We just have to look at the evidence. God presents it at the beginning of Isaiah's prophecy. These are what you might call his opening arguments. The Lord appeals to his audience, to all creation. Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth. And reminding his people Israel of the past, he says, I've nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. Chapter 1, verse 2. He was a good father, a good God. But how Israel, and how have we, so often treated our maker. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the anger of the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. Chapter 1, verse 4. Let the record show that we are a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. Chapter 1, verse 4, again. Our outright wickedness is one thing and it makes a long list of offences. But even our supposed goodness is just an odour in the court. That's what God says about Israel. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? 1 verse 11. He answers his own rhetoric in verse 13. Your incense is an abomination to me. It's a terrible offence because without a heart of living faith, even the nicest thing that we make is made in vain. Without true repentance, Even our daily prayers and our Sunday worship serve to condemn us. The charges are serious and cannot be disputed. All fingers point in our direction. Even our own conscience accuses us. Satan accuses us. God himself accuses us. In his righteousness, he doesn't miss anything. We read in Proverbs, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. Chapter 15, verse 3. And what does the Lord say about us according to Isaiah? Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. 1 verse 16. Humanly speaking, God is tired of our failures. He's ready to send us away forever. And who could blame him? It's clear that the accused is in trouble. Sitting there under God's cross-examination, we're in a very bad way. And we need to know this. So what can we do, beloved? What's the way out? The first thing scripture says Don't try to hide from God's searching eyes. Don't run away from your guilt or attempt to deny it. Adam and Eve tried to run and hide, they tried to cover their shame with fig leaves. God saw right through it. It didn't work for them. It won't work for us either. As much as we'd like to, don't blame your sin on the way you're brought up. Don't blame your character or or the pressure. You were under at the time or the difficult circumstance of your life come clean god says to sinners and face up to these charges the lord our god wants a confession even if it seems like confessing will only make our guilt seem worse it's what we need to do and bring it out into the open be honest acknowledge your sins to others and before the lord He already knows the details, but he wants to hear it from you. He wants to see that your sins grieve you, that they hurt you, because you know that they hurt him. He wants to hear that even though you're still inclined to all evil, you're not content to remain there. It's humbling, but this is what God wants. An honest acknowledgement of weakness and shame. For, says John, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Chapter 1, verse 9. You can hear that good things follow from our true confession. We don't get condemnation, but we get forgiveness and purification and righteousness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and to forgive. Our second point, the advocate is accomplished. Lawyers sometimes have a bad reputation. People seem to think that lawyers are good at exploiting the system to their advantage, charging high fees and looking for loopholes. But we probably shouldn't be so suspicious of lawyers especially when it comes to the one who sits besides us in God's court, our advocate, Jesus Christ. Let's understand his position. Christ is actually a defense attorney who's been appointed by the court, someone to represent us, who's been set in place by the judge because we couldn't afford to defend ourselves. And even if we could afford to, we wouldn't have found anyone to argue our hopeless case. But God, in his abundant grace, has granted us help. Writes the Apostle John, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Chapter 2, verse 1. We have an advocate, which means he is the one who speaks for us. Notice how John says he is the righteous one. Christ has proven himself to be an able and worthy defender. For Christ has constant and countless honours to his name. For one, he obeyed God's law while on earth. He abstained from all sin and he did all that was right. Then he honoured his God-given calling on earth from A to Z as a prophet, priest and a king. And finally, our advocate was faithful even to the point of death, staying true at the greatest cost to himself. The striking thing is that our advocate himself was once put on trial, once accused of blasphemy and rebellion. It happened in the courts of Jerusalem so long ago. To be sure, his trial before Pontius Pilate was a joke. He was unjustly condemned and it couldn't have been any other way for how could Jesus have ever gone to trial for some real offence? He didn't call for rebellion against Rome He called people to obey Caesar. Nor did he blaspheme God's name because truly he was the son of God There could only be false charges and lying testimony There could only be an unjust verdict. Yet, this was the way that God decided. This is the humiliating path that our advocate would follow. For Christ wasn't out for himself looking for honours and praise. He would bow to wicked rulers, he would stay silent as he was judged, found guilty, sentenced, and killed. And he would go through it all for a good reason. He would hang there, not just for some empty charges. He'd hang there, as John says, as the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. Chapter 2, verse 2. All our guilt was upon him, so he'd suffered to the greatest extent. And that was the force of the father's judgment on his son three times. Jesus was declared innocent by Pilate and from a human point of view he was innocent. But in the eyes of God Jesus was guilty beyond the shadow of doubt. That was the scene we began with in our introduction. This is a new argument. This is the new argument. The perfect defense. When Jesus stood up for us in the courtroom of God he stood and he declared Father don't hold these crimes against them. Please accept that it was me. I take on these charges, every last one of them. All this sin, I admit myself. I'll even become sin in their place so that nothing is left over for them. I'll endure the full sentence of your wrath so that these sinners can go free forever. Beloved, this is the gospel. This is how we who were once covered in our own guilt can be declared righteous. With We have been made right with the God who sits in judgment. We've been made right, but it's not because we deserve any kind of sympathy or help. For only the satisfaction, righteousness and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. Answer 61. We can rest only in what our advocate has done. It's our only defense. And it's our only defense by faith. That's the truth at the center of this Lord's day. The Father welcomes us back to his favor, those who believe. The accused can go free if we just accept it if we just reach out with the arms of faith and embrace our one defense and advocate, we'll be saved from condemnation. That's all it takes. We might think that there has to be more, that it's entirely too easy. It's so easy that some never get around to believing it. Some think it's beneath them to need a saviour that the guilt is really not that bad. But Christ's saving benefits are only by faith. They are only for those who confess to Christ every day, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Here are my sins. Take them away. Beloved, when we acknowledge that we have wandered, it's then that God takes us back. When we acknowledge that we are nothing, we gain everything. When we cast ourselves fully on Christ, the judge will show mercy. Our third point, the judge is gracious. By now, there's no question about the character of the heavenly judge. We know that he's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. We know this, but it's not something to take for granted. Let's understand first why God has the right to make judgments about anything and anyone in this world. He has this authority because all things were created by him and everything must bend before his will. Psalm 75 puts it this way, It is God who judges, he Brings one down and he exalts another. Verse 7. And God isn't just any judge. We expect that most judges will be honest and fair when they make their rulings. Yet every judge is only human, capable of prejudice and oversight and error. God alone is perfect, says the Lord in Psalm 75. It is I who judge uprightly. Verse 2. And being upright in all judgments means God can't overlook even the slightest sin. It's a zero-tolerance policy. And this isn't because God is petty or because he's a God who likes to sweat the small stuff. It's because, as John says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Chapter 1, verse 5. Sin, all sin is fundamentally at odds with God's holiness. Not a speck of filthiness will he allow in his glorious presence. So there's really no reason to expect mercy. Based on what God himself has said on who God is, sinners can expect only condemnation. And we'd have to say it's only fair. For God told us what he wanted. He warned us of the consequence But we went ahead anyway and sinned against him. We can't expect mercy from him unless somehow our sin has been properly addressed. But it's that very possibility that God suggests already in the opening statement in Isaiah. What does the judge say to his people there? Come now and let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Verse 18. Even as he points out their filthiness, he says it can be washed completely away. The criminal record can be totally erased. And it's been done through one of the one of God's own choosing. Isaiah will tell us about him in places like chapters 40, chapter 53. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her, that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, chapter 40, verse 2. For on God's chosen one, our iniquities have been laid. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, chapter 53, verse 5. Here's how it works. The judge makes a legal exchange. In his records, he makes a transfer of all those many honors accruing to Christ's name. He transfers them from him to us. And our guilt, in turn, he transfers to Christ. It's the glorious exchange. We confess in the Catechism, God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had never had nor committed any sin, as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, answer 60. This is the perfect mercy of our judge. He speaks tenderly to the people who once scorned him. He helps the people who once said that we'd be fine on our own. Without contradicting his justice, he shows us a rich compassion So now asks Paul, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is it that he condemns? Romans 8, verse 33 and 34. Beloved, if we are in Christ, no one can condemn us, for God has handed down that most unexpected verdict. Our fourth point the verdict is unexpected. We've all seen this in one place or another. The judge or the jury re-entered a courtroom with a big decision. The whole court stands. The drama weighs heavily in the air. Waiting for the verdict, the accused grows pale and trembles. And then the announcement, not guilty. A sigh goes through the courtroom. Some might shout in dismay. Others in joy. Sometimes such a verdict is almost expected if the prosecution hasn't done its work or defence has shown a reasonable doubt. But sometimes the verdict is a complete surprise. They really didn't think that it would go this way. So it is with our trial. We know that all the evidence is stacked up against us. We expect a conviction. Satan expects a conviction. But God's grace is always surprising. In Christ, all those sins have been taken away. And truth be told, we're declared more than just not guilty. If that's all it was, we'd still be hopeless. As soon as we left the courtroom, we'd re-offend. We'd immediately be going back to what God forbids and failing to do what God commands. So God actually declares us righteous, that is completely, thoroughly and permanently innocent. God declares that, in principle, we sinners have been fully rehabilitated and totally renewed. In Christ, I am righteous before God and an heir to life everlasting. Answer 59. No, the struggle against sin continues every single day. We know it to be a long and hard struggle. But we need no longer live as captive to sin's power because Christ has set us free. Nor do we live in guilt. Because whatever God held against us has been dealt with. It's been dealt with so now we can have peace. Peace with God, peace within ourselves, and peace with fellow man. It means that there's no more uncertainty about our relationship with God. Through Christ, salvation is completely secure. You don't have to rely on your good works or on other people or on traditions or ceremonies but by faith you can rely entirely on the mercy of God. Christ will soon come again from heaven the advocate himself now appointed as a judge of the living and the dead. All people will appear before his throne. That's the great trial at which we all must yet appear. We'll all get our day in court. Yet when the books are opened on that day, we know that every last one of those pages will be wiped clean. Every last one of the black marks of our offences will be blotted out. Blotted with the blood of Christ. If we've believed in his name on that final day, will be crowned with everlasting glory and honour. So, beloved, here's something to think about in this new week. How do you think that a forgiven sinner should conduct himself? What should such a person do if he's been released from a death sentence, if he's been granted a full pardon, given full privilege and blessing and wealth? How should such a person live? Someone who's got back his or her life, and freedom, and honour, and future. What would you render to God for all the riches of his consolation? What do you give back to him, the Saviour, every day of this new week? Let's show our thanksgiving to our advocate and judge. Every day, let's present him with our grateful praise. Amen.